question answer time. Joyce, did you want to pick the kiddos? We have some kiddos to head to the nursery. I should have done that earlier too. But before we get into handling your questions, I just want to wrap up the last chapter of Revelation. And that's actually probably, well, not probably, it's doing a disservice to that uh, facet of it. There's some important material here um, that uh, we don't spend enough time on and discussion of. And so let's go ahead and look into it very quickly. I'm in Revelation chapter 22, the last chapter of your Bible. We're going to pick up in verse 6. So let me just read down through the end of the book. It says, Then he said to me, These words are faithful and true, and the Lord God of the holy prophets sent his angel to show his servants the things which must shortly take place. Behold, I am coming quickly. Blessed is he who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. Now I, John, saw and heard these things, and when I heard and saw, I fell down to worship before the feet of the angel who showed me these things. Then he said to me, See that you do not do that, for I am your fellow servant, and of your brother and the prophets, and of those who keep the words of this book, worship God. And he said to me, Do not seal the words of the prophecy of this book, for the time is at hand. He who is unjust, let him be unjust still. He who is filthy, let him be filthy still. He who is righteous, let him be righteous still. He who is holy, let him be holy still. And behold, I am coming quickly, and my reward is with me to give to everyone according to his work. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. Blessed are those who do his commandments, and that they may have the right to the tree of life and may enter through the gates into the city. But outside are dogs and sorcerers and sexually immoral and murderers and idolaters and whoever loves and practices a lie. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you these things in the churches. I am the root and the offspring of David, the bright and morning star. And the spirit and the bride say, Come. And let him who hears say, Come. And let him who thirsts come. Whoever desires, let him take the water of life freely. For I testify to everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, if anyone adds to these things, God will add to him the plagues that are written in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of of the book of this prophecy, God shall take away his part from the book of life, from the holy city, and from the things which are written in this book. He who testifies to these things says, Surely I am coming quickly. Amen. Even so come, Lord Jesus. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. So we have it finishing up, and uh, this is very indicative of other books of this nature uh, in its time frame, and a lot of people have made much about that, of these um, curses and blessings and in, in reference to what is written, trying to ward off people from, from uh, manipulating it. Uh, and we find here, though, couched within all of this, are, are a couple of directives that we want to look at very quickly. Um, some of these we've already tackled, and that was when we did chapter 1, um, because much of this will be reminiscent of the first chapter, where we, uh, among them, is the uh, anticipation that this will be completed within the age of the church. That is, there is no additional season. And the word for time throughout Revelation 1 and here in Revelation 22 is not chronos, which is the Greek word for uh, like a watch. But it's rather the word that refers to seasons. And so when it talks about um, the time is short or the things are at hand, um, they're coming quickly, uh, they will shortly take place. Um, And certainly they did already 
we did find that, but in verse 10 it says, the time is at hand. Uh, the initiation of some of these prophecies we saw happened in 70 AD, uh, 67 AD technically. And so we see that, that facets of this had already begun. Facets of this prophetic utterance had uh, really been right on the heels of its giving if we go with the early date of Revelation, and some of it had already been well initiated if we go with the later date. Um, of course, the aspects of Revelation that had to deal with Christ uh, and his sacrifice on Calvary's cross, including his birth and things like that, um, we obviously see as historical. And so uh, the commandment is very different than what we have in the Old Testament. There are several times in the Old Testament where we are told to seal up the prophecies because not for a long time. Daniel is the, is the most obvious one. Daniel says, I want to know what this all means. And God tells him, seal the book. There's only one generation that's going to get it, and it's the generation that's going to live through it, and only the wise of that generation are going to get it. And so just seal it up. It's not really for you to understand. It's not really for any, any intermediate generation to fully get right, um, which is kind of interesting because it calls on us to do something, to be current, that we need to address these uh, books of the Bible uh, generationally, that we can't go back and say, well, this is how it's always been interpreted for the last 500 years. Well, that generation is gone, and so we can't use their interps of those passages uh, fully. We have to adapt them or adjust them, um, sometimes radically and sometimes subtly, um, to fit uh, the period and the, and the rest of scriptures more carefully. And we've tried to do that with Revelation, just as we have done with Daniel on some occasions when we... Uh, went into there. But here at the end of Revelation, we find the statement, don't seal this book because it's right now. And this is very typical of most prophets of biblical record. Um, They have early prophecies that needed to be fulfilled within usually a few years of the prophetic utterance. And that was to give a stamp, if you will, of divine authorship or authority to the balance of what they taught. And so when you go into a prophet and he gives a chapter or two of things that seem to work really close to his time period, uh, and then all of a sudden he jumps, and now we're talking about the millennial kingdom age. We're talking about something that's going to be thousands of years in the future, and we might say, well, how do you keep these straight? Well, the first ones are there purposefully to give authentication to the prophet's work. And remember in the Old Testament, if the prophet was wrong on the near stuff, you were to ignore everything else that he taught and stone him to death. Uh, and so that's how important those were. So those were critical in the time of the prophet. And that's true with Revelation as well. Don't seal up any part of this because there is no other age. The church age is going to be the culmination uh, and it is already initiated in the time of John. It will be in... Uh, uh, recognizable uh, sprouts, if you will, um, before his death. Uh, certainly the fall of Jerusalem is going to happen. Uh, certainly we have uh, some facets of the, of the horsemen, the four horsemen of the church age and not the apocalypse we talked about. We're going to see the fifth seal. Those facets are all going to be in play um, for this first generation that received this book. 
And what that does, that gives, us, that gives us authentication of the balance of the record. And so when we have this kind of a statement that not to seal the book, the time is at hand, um, and it should have an impact. And, and there is, uh, 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 this is the last age. And if you don't deal with your sin in this last age, there is no other age to deal with it. And this we have been uh, con- trying to be consistent with in our interpretation of Revelation, that this is it. The church age is it. We had the, the pre-flood age. We had the age between the flood and Abraham. We had Abraham uh, to Christ, or really to Moses, and we had the age of the law, Moses to Christ, um, and now we have the church age, and this is it. Um, and so when it says, uh, if you're going to stick to sin, you're going to be a sinner at the end of this age. Uh, there's no ref- reformation. Uh, this is the time to either choose um, Christ or to choose to re- stay in rebellion and in your sin, and that will be your estate. There is no after this age opportunity to uh, adjust your standing. Uh, and that's really what's being communicated. By the time the judgments come, your fate is sealed. This is the time. This is the day of salvation. The Bible says today is the day. Um, and uh, we have many other religions that are now teaching, uh, and too many are bending to this, are now teaching that, well, once you get... Uh, out of this age, you'll have another chance. Um, and uh, whether it's purgatory, uh, that you can pay for sin there, and then you can get out of purgatory later on. Um, in Catholic doctrine, that's really a pretty modern idea, even by Catholic terms. Um, whether we have the Mormons, that if you're not on the God track here, you can't get a, you, your own universe in the future, but... You can certainly do some things and work and earn your way uh, out of uh, any kind of place of punishment into a place of, of paradise-like living. Um, and so you have a lot of that being taught. And Revelation is very clear that if you don't take care of it now, and you wait till the judgment seats, and you wait till the great white throne, or uh, it's sealed, it's done. You're finished. There is no movement there. So if you're a sinner at that point, you're a sinner still. If you're righteous at that point by the blood of Jesus Christ, then you're righteous, and that can't be changed. And that there's some uh, looking forward to that aspect of the presence of sin being gone, not just the penalty and the, and the power of sin, but its presence as well. And so uh, in the midst of this, of course, we have a very important statement where the angels again say you don't worship me you worship the one uh, and then of course Christ comes on the scene to finish the revelation uh, by describing himself and again what he when he comes and this is, is very reminiscent of what we saw in chapter one and uh, that he is the alpha the mega the beginning of the end uh, and it's appropriate that we find him here of course the first and the last and we go back to the themes of John in all of his writings, in the Gospel, in 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, this theme, and that is, blessed are those who do his commandments, verse 14, uh, and that they may have the right to the tree of life. And for John, doing the commandments is the evidence that you have surrendered your life to Christ, that you obey God and 
the first step of obedience for John is that you uh, come to Christ and acknowledge your sin and turn from him and receive him as your Lord and Savior. Uh, to John, that's where the first step of obedience is. So you're going to obey by trusting in Christ. And that that obedience is going to be then followed by baptism. It's going to be followed by uh, acts of obedience that we obey. And, and it's not a bad thing. It's not hard. It's not uh, something we groan about or moan about. We, we are glad to be obedient. Um, and that's how we know that we are the children of God is when we keep his commandments. And uh, among those commandments, of course, is to love God, to love God's people, um, and and that's been emphasized already much earlier. And so we find this uh, declaration that um, the invitation is still out there because we're still in this age. So the prophecy is sure, um, but it hasn't been fulfilled And so we still have this invitation. The invitation is come, 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 come. Um, This is the time. And so in the midst of almost all prophetic authors in Scripture, um, over and over again, its purpose is to call people to repentance uh, and to recognize that there's a shortness. There's a shortness to life. There's a shortness to the patience of God in dealing with sin on a global basis. Um, and there needs to be a, a, a calling of men to repentance, to come to Christ, and to uh, partake of him. And so uh, it can, really concludes uh, in verse 20 and 21 with uh, this desire of John is, uh, even so, come Lord Jesus. And so with Christ's statement, I'm coming quickly. John is simply accepting that and recognizing there's great joy in that for those who have trusted in Christ. And so our interest is come quickly. Uh, and so that, that we all, every generation of the church has really kind of prayed that prayer, come quickly. You're going to come in our generation. And of course, we've looked through the Revelation and we recognize that that really wasn't feasible for many generations. And this generation, very uniquely, it is not just feasible. And we do not have to spiritualize much of this book at all um, to really grasp that it is in full bloom and ripe and mature and ready to pick. I mean, it is, it is almost overripe. Uh, we, we can anticipate Christ's coming and we can almost um, taste it because... Um, it's so evident around us. And so, like every other generation, our generation ought to have that same attitude, Lord, come quickly. Um, But even more so as we look through the balance of what we have studied and see how much of this book has already been fulfilled, in addition to much of what we saw in the Old Testament prophets and the other series called Signs of the Times, that this is what it calls us to. It calls us to repentance. It calls us to faithfulness. And it calls us to expectation. Are you expecting the Lord's return? And uh, that is John's response to all of this. He's humbled at receiving this revelation, but he also knows that my response is expectation. I want it to happen. Um, And I don't know that I always had that. Growing up, I I think I always was like, well, I I hope the Lord comes, but 
I don't want to miss out on these things I think are going to happen in my future. Now I'm like, I hope the Lord comes because it's getting really painful to live any longer, um, as old as I'm getting. Uh, <laughs> and uh, But as we look around at our world and we see where it's going and we see it correlating with what we, have, what we read in God's Word, uh, we recognize that the brevity of this church age um, is obvious. That it is coming to a close, and therefore we need to stay faithful, and we also need to be about that business of drawing others to repentance and calling out, come, 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 come to Christ. And that's our invitation to the world, is to come to Christ before it's too late. Okay? So that's my summarizing the, this last chapter. Um, I, as I said, I want to give time for you to ask questions and to inquire. And we're really going to look at the whole 22 chapters you have to draw from. Um, there might have been a couple that you missed along the way. Uh, and I will try to answer them as briefly as possible, if possible. And if there are more lengthy answers are required, I will certainly... Um, be willing to share some of that maybe after the service even. Okay, but do you have any questions from our study in Revelation? I know this has been going on for a long time. Uh, how long does it take me to get through this book? Anybody know? A little over a year. So, okay, we've been studying Revelation on Sunday night a little over a year. And uh, so you're... Uh, <laughs> You have a lot to draw from. Any questions? Maybe I did such a spectacular job that even people that weren't here got it all. Yes. Right. In the creation narrative. He created all the fishes and all of that. Right. And all of it was in one place. All the water was in one place. And that is the uh, description of the creative account. And a lot of people say, well, how can there be this and this? Moses, of course, is writing back. And using terms and he, he, that uh, gathered the waters, he called seas, and God saw that it was good. In verse 10 is what he's talking about. And the waters all in one place, he called them seas. Um, not the word that we would typically use for what we experience as oceans. And it's that... The, the, <laughs> it'd be comparable to I don't know what I want to say um, inlets it would be comparable to coves because um, all the waters were in one place and we don't really have that uh, division of the land that's post flood and so all of that division in terms of continents and things like that 
because all the lands in one place, all the seas in one place. But when we talk about the seas, uh, as in terms of our experience of the oceans, they are in multiple places. Um, and so uh, that's that evidence of the wrath of God is the division that we see, not only of peoples, but of the land and the seas. We also recognize that the rivers are familiar names, but obviously those rivers are not the rivers that we associate, right? Because the flood dramatically changes the whole geography, and uh, yet we still have those rivers that are named in Eden uh, that we have named in Babylon and in Iran or Iraq today. Um, But obviously... You don't need to poke around there to find the Garden of Eden and the Tree of Life. Um, the the flood narrative, flood event, would have dramatically changed all of that. And so some of this is projecting um, back and forth between those from our modern experience to understand the creative account, and we're using terminology and even titles that are borrowed one from the other. And which direction they are borrowed has been a big discussion. <laughs> Whether Moses borrowed the modern titles or the modern titles are borrowed from the pre-flood people who would have, the Tigris River would have been there and identifiable um, and not able to enter that area because of the flaming sword. Yes? Right. And Hebrew, right. And the Hebrew is, yeah, this is not a, what you would think of as the oceans, the seven seas. Um, that's not what's described here. It's a single place, and the plurality of it is, is the idea that there are many accesses, but, and, but it was just one place. And not salinated, so fresh water all the way around. Good. Other questions? Yes? They go back into the lake of fire. Yeah, the question is, is purgatory derived out of the concept of Hades? Um, and not... I don't know that I'm expert on its on the process or how it was introduced. I know why it was introduced, and I know the man who introduced it, but I don't know that I have well read the theological way he introduced it, whether it was via uh, the place of torment in Hades um, but it's obvious that hey, that was an insurmountable gap, even by the works of men or the of living men or the giving. And so I would hesitate to attach that. They might have. 
that's very possible. Um, but I do know the guy that came up with it, and I know why, and that was to raise money, and it was very effective. But you know, the idea of purgatory is an invention to uh, extract money. Um, it, it could have, but I think they would have been stretching. But they stretch a lot of things, so... <laughs> Like I said, I don't know how it was developed itself. Yes? Okay, we are warned multiple times to get out of Babylon. Um, that's not the city in Iraq. <laughs> uh, Babylon was Mystery, um, who was the harlot that rode the beast. And we are told to get out of her. And she represents uh, false religion um, across history. And it goes way back, all the way, we, we trace all the way back to Semiramis and Nimrod and follow it through. And so the instruction is to get out of that false religious belief system. With, with, and it's more than just one, it's any. And to recognize that she's there for the entire existence of the beast of the nations of the capital b beast the 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 empires that she's there riding it and so our instruction is you can't really get out of the country uh from in in terms of the beast um although you are to be very careful in your uh not to envelop their uh uh, doctrines in your life um, but essentially it's in, in trying to get out of the harlot you're trying to remove yourself from false teaching uh, from false religions and that I would say is is very literal get out um, there is a, a we, we saw that the kings of the earth that give their get their authority and give their authority to the uh, man of sin um, for that brief time that uh, destroy the harlot, but they're also instruments of God because um, God wants her destroyed. And so the there is inherent danger in being associated with her um, on any level. And this is one of the arguments that a lot of people who... Uh, I, I believe there are, there are many within... Um, Catholicism, let's just take, since we've already discussed them, that uh, are true believers in Christ Jesus. And uh, they have a commitment to Catholicism because of familial. Um, I've had some that say, well, I want to reach my fellow Catholics for Christ. And again, um, their argument doesn't hold water because um, by being a part of it, you are condoning it, even when you say with your mouth you are not. You essentially are. Uh, and it's no different than someone, than, uh, than the argument that we're going to go look like the world to reach the world. And it doesn't work. You're supposed to be different. And we're calling people out of, out of, out of the world, out of uh, the harlot. And so in order to call them out of, you have to be out of. And, and that's the command, is that we not be a part of her. Do not be part of her, uh, her activities, um, because they are um, 
an approach to God. And if they're an approach to God, why aren't they an approach to you? You Why aren't you disgusted by it and willing to tolerate it in the idea that you can somehow reach them by being among them as one of them? And the Bible is very clear that is not how you reach people. It's by being like them, among them, as one of them. Over and over again, we are called upon to be different. Come out from amongst them, says the Lord. And that we call them out. And at the end of Revelation, it's not, come with me out. It's, I'm out here, come on. (laughs) You come too. And so I I have had some uh, very good friends that I have made that uh, when I... when I talk with them, we sit down and have discussions. Um, they, they, and I ask them, do you believe this? No. Do you believe this? No. Well, why are you a Catholic? You don't believe any of their doctrines. He says, well, and again, the wishy-washy answers, and it's like, you know, God wants you out of there. And that's true. If a Muslim comes to know Christ, I expect him not to be going uh, and, and, praying like a Muslim, and I don't expect him to be going in and, and uh, to Muslim places of worship and trying to reach Muslims. That's not how you do it. You do it by being different. So it's not just false Christian religions that we are called out of, but any false religious system. Okay? Other questions? Yes? No, um, there is a distinction between the gathering trumpet um, of both Matthew 24 and Thessalonians and the seven trumpets. The description of the seven trumpets is they are the woes. And so these are the outpouring, and the seventh trumpet, of course, opens the, the, the final woe, which is the bulls. And so these are very obviously judgments of God. And expressions of his wrath, and in fact, uh, we find in the description of how they initiated, it's initiated out of his fiery judgment, whereas the, the trumpet of God that calls people, uh, that gathers the elect in Matthew 24 and in Thessalonians, the trumpet sounds, um, is, is the trumpet very distinctly of God that is a gathering call and not a, a outpouring of wrath and so the trumpets are going to be after the so you have the trumpet of god then you will have the trumpets of judgment and so the gathering and so we would i would see that as being uh uh, found in um, the sixth seal so as the sixth seal is sounded or is broken open um we would have the rapture event occur then. Which is different than a lot of ones out there. So I've tried to be very forthright of where I, where I vary from some of the other positions. Others? Are people born after which resurrection? The first or the second? (laughs) Um, 
that the big one would be the big question would be the millennial kingdom. Um, uh, the indication, of course, is that uh, uh, the extended lifespan, where we see that someone dies at a hundred, they're considered a child, uh, and so there is some question of will they be progenitor? Will, will there be any, any uh, uh, births during that time? And if so, what is the condition of those people? And the Bible really never addresses it. Um, we just know that the effects of sin are gone, and perhaps one of the consequences of sin um, that might be gone, and many have, not many, a few have speculated that among the consequences of sin that is gone is the uh, frequency of childbirth. That when we go back into God's curse on Adam and Eve, particularly on Eve, that when it talks about having pain in childbirth, that isn't just uh, a pain, it's also increased frequency. That uh, without that curse, it may have been very possible that Eve may have only had one child a millennia. She might have only been fertile once a thousand years. And if that's accurate, and there does seem to be some implications there, that, um, that then that might account for so few children, if any, being born during the millennial kingdom. But we really don't know. And, but we do know that, the, that everyone who's participating in the first resurrection at the end of the millennial kingdom um, that's sealed. So there's no evidence that there's anyone coming to Christ during the millennial kingdom that I can find other than national Israel. Others. No, it would be those alive on the planet. Um, they will move into the millennial kingdom. And so they are given a hiding place, if you will, um, because at the halfway point of the seven years of God's wrath, when the man of sin breaks the tree, seven-year treaty, um, that violation of the temple um, immediately sends Israel um, into hiding um, because they become public enemy number one. Uh, we are not public enemy number one during the seven years of God's wrath because we aren't on the planet. Public enemy number one is Israel. And so she will be hidden and the indication is that it will be in Jordan um, because they aren't going to be part of the treaty. And Daniel makes that very clear that there is one, it's described as three peoples, uh, Moab, uh, Edom and the prominent people of Ammon is what Daniel says are not part of the treaty. And those three people groups uh, are the nation, modern nation of Jordan. And so Israel would go and hide there. So they would have to survive. And uh, there is some pretty strong evidence that many, many of them will survive. That, that, and, and when you think about, you say, well, the Antichrist, the, the man of sin will have all the resources of the planet and all modern technology to hunt them down. Um, but you need to think about what else the world is dealing with. What else is going on in the world that they're dealing with? They can't just expend all their resources hunting down Jewish people. What are they dealing with? 
seven trumpets, seven thunders, and seven bowl judgments. They're dealing with catastrophic global event after catastrophic global event. Um, And these are going to be hidden from it. We also have the work of the 144,000 preparing the way for that, of those men sharing a witness of Christ, and so that when that violation happens, they have that testimony intact, and they are pretty much anticipating Christ for three and a half years. Because I I would contend that they have been listening to the 144,000 and two witnesses before they were martyred and and are going to be ready to receive Christ in his return at the end of that time. So I, I believe most of national Israel will be preserved that are looking for Christ. So that's what I mean by the Israel as a national Israel, that they will, as a body, as a group that have have, uh, survived through the seven years, um, that they will receive Christ as their Messiah, as their king, and receive the blessings Ezekiel talks about. If I don't answer your satisfaction, let me know. Yes. The man of sin is is described as First of all, abandoning the God of his fathers. That is, he doesn't worship the God of his forefathers. And whether that's uh, personal forefathers or the forefathers of his people or the people he's reigning over um, can be discussed. Um, And that he will go after a a God of fortresses. And there has been, for as long as there's been the book of Daniel, I think, there has been a lot of discussion on who that God is this God of fortresses. Um, And there has been some strong attempts, of course, in this period of time right now with uh, with communism not being the main threat, but radical Islam becoming the main threat. Uh, For a while there, it was communism, was the God of fortresses, because he abandoned gods. He abandoned the God of his forefathers and went after the little g of fortresses and they associated that with communism now we associate with radical islam um, and there is some some attachment there uh, and uh, obviously the idea of having a god of fortresses is um, portrayed in the idea of warfare and violence and so that's why we Picked communists during the communist during the Cold War. Um, it always happened to be America's enemy. You always notice that. <laughs> um, but we um, we need to recognize that ultimately the man of sin uh, doesn't have his full allegiance to any god um, because his whole desire is to rid the world of the harlot entirely. And that would include, if radical Islam is the god of fortresses, that would include radical Islam. And um, 
that shouldn't be surprising. Also, if you, if you want to associate that he's following the God of Fortresses with radical Islam, or Islam at all, you have to, court, you have to also accommodate the fact that he is not a lover of women um, and his homosexuality, which Islam profoundly... Um, I mean, they, they're, you're, you're a dead person if you're in Saudi Arabia and you're homosexual. I mean, you're stoned to death. You're, you're, you're done. And uh, so how to correlate those two begins to ha- have us understand that his relationship with any religion on earth is marginal at best and adversarial most of the time. And, and that's the character of the man of sin. But yeah, there's been a lot of discussion about that and it has moved over the generations. And I, I'm sure it was referenced as Nazi Germany for a while too. And... And every commentator I come to will just guess um, because it is very unclear and the Hebrew there is not helpful. <laughs> we'll put it like that. Um, but uh, men are violent enough that you could almost attach yourself to any. But the idea of associating warfare with gods and fortresses with gods is not unique to Islam, Right? Romans had gods of war. Greeks had gods of war. So um, that's not a... Warring gods are not abnormal. In fact, that is the norm. What is abnormal is a god that is an advocate of peace. That's very rare. Okay. The others... Okay. Okay. In in Revelation 13, we have two beasts. Um, one that's still on the sand of the sea, um, and then by the time we get to verse 11, we have another beast coming up out of the earth, um, and. Uh, those two are, are different, and I think the key to, inter- to understanding that is chapter 17, where the angel is explaining the beasts, and in the, he, the, the, the explanation that John doesn't have, because John doesn't have one key. And all through Revelation, what we've done is we've taken the Old Testament as a key, that, there is, um, that we use those Old Testament symbols, and we bring them forward, where they're explained. And so we know what beasts are from Daniel. So a beast in Daniel consistently equals an empire. Does not ever equal a person. The horns of the beast um, can be the person. For example, the, the beast with the one prominent horn. Well, the one prominent horn represented Alexander. It was broken off, four horns grew in its place. The horns represented his four generals. Now, those became lesser kingdoms, little and nations, but not empires. And so um, that beast was equal to empire. And we have horns of beasts equal to kings. And we have, but then this beast has something really strange with his heads. And by the way, the two horns um, can be two lesser nations. So we have the, 
the beast with two little horns, with two horns, um, and that was Media and Persia, uh, one a little bit bigger than the other one. And um, so we have all of this cataloged for us in the Old Testament, but the idea of multiple-headed beast is new. And because that's a new facet, John needs that explained to him, and in chapter 17, it's explained by the, by the angel, and it says that uh, the, the heads, in verse 9 of chapter 17, it says, the seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman sits. These are also, your version says there, but these are also seven kings, and uh, the word kings there is referring to empires, but they're not of this nature. So this first beast that comes out of the land is kind of, we, we described it as the beast of beasts. It's kind of representing all the work of men to gather themselves in empires and fundamentally um, try to rule that way. The heads referred to um, these mountain kings. And I would see that as being these representations of men's activity against God as empires, specifically with reference to Israel. And five, it says, are history to John. One is current in John's time. One is to come, and that covers seven. So we have five historical ones, and we can back that up and see Egypt, Assyria, Babylon, Greece, and Media, Media Persia is between Babylon and Greece, sorry. Media Persia and then Greece. The one that is would be Rome. The one to come is a question mark. And then, interestingly enough, here in chapter 17, it says in verse 10, there are also seven kings, five have fallen, one is, and the other has not yet come. And when he comes, he must continue a short time. But then verse 11 says, the beast that was and is not is himself also the eighth. And my question is the eighth what? The eighth head. There's an eighth head of the beast. It says there's only seven heads. And so where's the eighth coming from? And my contention is the eighth head, the eighth head is equal to the second lowercase b beast of Revelation 13. And they correlate um, in time-wise in reference to each other. And so he is of the seven, and he is going to perdition. He's going to be the last. He's going to be the last manifestation of the beast of beasts, will be the eighth head, and uh, he will be the second beast. So um, the first beast is a, encompassing all of the history of empires from Nimrod all the way to Christ, um, exclusive of Christ. And the heads represent its manifestation in different periods of time, with the eighth head being equivalent, the last one being equivalent to the second beast that came out of the earth in Revelation 13. And so there was, from between Rome and this one, there would be an empire. And we saw that as being the United Kingdom, that that was the empire. And then out of the United Kingdom would come the eighth one who was of it, once was part of it, and we saw that as the United States being represented there. And that fulfilled a lot of Daniel, that fulfilled a lot of um, Haggai. The, uh, Haggai? 
that also fulfilled Revelation 13. And the activity of that beast is equivalent to the activity of that one. Okay? So the one is part of the other one, is my answer, I guess. Short answer. And that's a big departure, right? From the idea that those are two people. A big departure. But I'm not the first one to say it, interestingly enough. Um, I have a couple of books on my shelf that contend the very same thing. So I'm not the first, but uh, probably the first that's put it into a full uh, eschatology. others. So we have two things out of Revelation. Um, Time is short. This is the last age. This is it. And uh, stand fast in your faith. Be wary of the evil one. Conspiracies exist because Satan is real. And the nations are not to be applauded, for we are citizens of one nation, uh, of one kingdom, and that is of Christ. And so we are strangers here. And so over and over again, like the letters to the churches, do not have anything to do with whether it's the Nicolaitans or the harlot or false teaching. And we are to be calling people to repentance. Come, come, come. Before it's too late. Let's have our prayer. Lord God, we do thank you for your love for us. We thank you again for your word. And, and uh, we sense its urgency. And it's, we sense the importance of that message that you've called us to bear. And we pray that we might do so in uh, righteousness. And uh, with a heart that yearns for others to be delivered in this, from this age, but also from the age to come that they might be brought into your kingdom and enjoy that which you will bring with you of reward, of, of uh, the tree of life and the, and the river of life and the, uh, your presence and your light. And Lord, we pray that we might behave ourselves as children of light in this world as we look forward to your coming. And Lord, we do pray with John as we look around us and as we look within us and in your word, we, we agree. Lord, come quickly. In Christ Jesus' name, amen.